I'll open your Bibles, please, and follow through with me. I'll be looking at the text. I've also got the text coming up on the screen when I refer to the verses. That will save me reading most of the verses, and I trust you'll follow with me. But before we do, let's seek God's help. Let's pray. Lord our God, as we come to this difficult passage in your word, we recognize that you have given it to us. And we also know what your word says, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so we come in that vein and ask that you be pleased to reveal the things of Christ to us that we see in the text this morning. Lord, grant us the grace to embrace it and indeed to put it into effect in our lives. So we commit ourselves to you and pray that Jesus might be honoured in and through the message this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. If you are like me and you like Chinese food, I'm sure at some stage or another you would have had sweet and sour pork. Well, have you ever wondered why something can be sweet and sour at the same time? The reason I mention that is because I believe revelation is sweet and sour. For those who know God through Jesus, it's sweet. It's sweet because the battle has been won by Jesus, the lamb, and we've seen that in the earlier chapters. The battle's been won over the beast, or Satan and his evil horse. The battle has been won for the people whom Jesus will claim as his own. But it's also bitter, isn't it? It's bitter or sour because the book also speaks of judgment, something we wish, we wish wasn't there, because it's sour to the taste of those who are opposed to the lamb, to those who belong to the beast. So we see that aspect here in this chapter as well. It's both sweet and sour in our text this morning. It speaks of judgment, but it also speaks of the glorious future that awaits the people of Jesus. So what's the text speaking about? What's it saying? It highlights two witnesses, doesn't it? And it, the whole chapter follows on from that of what the witnesses will do and how they will die and how they are resurrected and so on and so forth. So I want to just look at two areas testimony of the two witnesses and then the death of the two witnesses. So bear with me as we go through the text and I try to explain the text and then I'll make two points of application when I'm through with explaining the text. Firstly the testimony of the two witnesses. Now I've been asked from the time I began this book by a few of you, who do you believe the two witnesses are? And I've said, well wait and see. So we've come to that time where the waiting and seeing is over. So the question I want to ask is, whom do these two witnesses represent? And there are those who believe that it speaks about two individuals, literally two individuals or two people who would appear sometime in the future. There's a whole lot of differ differing views in regards to this. There are those who believe that the two witnesses will be Moses and Elijah, and they do so 
because of what we are told in verse 6 and verse 7 where John is alluding to uh, what Moses and Elijah did. And I'll point that out in a moment. Others believe that it refers to two Jewish preachers like Peter and Paul, while others maintain it's Elijah and Enoch, simply because Elijah and Enoch did not die. They were translated into heaven before they died. But you see, if you maintain that two biblical figures will come back to life in the future, what are you saying? You are saying that you believe in reincarnation or something along those lines. And my Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. However, verse 4 identifies who these two witnesses are, doesn't it? Look at what it says. It says, these are the two olive trees, that's the two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that's not my, that might not be very helpful, but uh, that's what it says. The two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And it's clearly a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. So any interpretation about these two witnesses should be seen in the light of one's understanding of Zechariah chapter 4. There's no doubt that John is referring here to Zechariah chapter 4 as well in saying what he's saying. And in that passage in Zechariah chapter 4, the context is the rebuilding of the temple. And there are two primarily men, uh, two men primarily involved, and that is Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, and of course Zechariah, the prophet. And Zechariah, what he sees there, he sees seven lamps and two olive trees inside the temple. And that's where we make the connection. But who are the two witnesses? Here in Revelation chapter 11, which the text identifies as the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now remember, with biblical interpretation, we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And here in this case, Jesus has already pointed out what the lampstands stand for. You may remember back to chapter 1 where Jesus says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Revelation says that lampstands are churches. It wouldn't refer to churches in one passage in chapter 1 and then point to something different here in chapter 11. So lampstands are churches. And here in, in verse 4 of our text, he says that the two lampstands are witnesses. In other words, the churches are the witnesses. But you're going to say to me, well, there's two lampstands here, whereas Jesus talks about seven lampstands uh, in, um, in chapter 1. It would have made it a lot easier if he had said there were seven here in this chapter. So why two? Well, one reason could be because the minimum number of witnesses the scripture says is needed for establishing something is two. And we're talking about witnesses here, remember. It's there in Numbers, it's there in Deuteronomy, and it's there in Matthew chapter 18 as well. But I think more importantly, the reason for two here very likely relates to what was said about the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. And I'm not expecting you to remember that far back into chapter 2 and 3. Some of you might remember that. But there we are told that only two churches were faithful witnesses. 
okay? Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other five were rebuked by Jesus for their bad witness. Yes, he did have a couple of good things to say about them, but primarily and on the whole, he rebukes them for their bad witness. And only two churches were commended. So when Jesus, through John, speaks of these faithful two witnesses, he alludes to the two faithful churches spoken of in the earlier chapters. Because remember, lampstands are churches. So the two witnesses here, or two lampstands, could refer to the faithful few who are part of the whole church. Two out of the seven. In other words, the two witnesses or two lampstands in chapter 11, or the two faithful churches, is in contrast to the whole church, who are not always faithful as witnesses to the Lord and his gospel, just as the wider church today isn't as well. Next question. The two olive trees mentioned in our text. They were there to provide oil for the two lampstands or the two churches, which is in Zechariah. Again, implying from that passage in Zechariah 4 that Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were rebuilding the temple, were involved with rekindling and restoring the light of Israel's witness. Or if you want to put it in a, in a different way, they were involved with rekindling and restoring the Old, Old Testament church's witness. Or to bring it into New Testament times, the New Testament church's witness. So pulling that all together, what we've seen is that speaking of the two witnesses, it is speaking of the whole church, isn't it? The faithful church of Jesus Christ. The faithful church throughout history. Notice it says in verse 5, if anyone would harm them. Obviously speaking of people, the people of God. So it's the church that is God's witness to the truth. It's the church that bears testimony as witness to the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, who are witnesses to the truth about Jesus. Now verse 5 speaks of fire from the mouth of the two witnesses. What does that mean? Obviously it's symbolic. It highlights the fact that as believers we speak the truth of the gospel which involves judgment for those who would not believe. It involves the ultimate judgment too which this passage speaks about that awaits unbelievers. So it's like fire from our mouth to them. It highlights judgment. There's fire that comes out of our mouth. The fire that torments unbelievers. Verse 10. Who bring their height to bear on the church. So to sum up what we've seen so far, lampstands are churches and just as the lampstands in chapter 1 verse 20 stand for all the people in the churches, so the two lampstands here in chapter 11 represent the faithful people of God who are a faithful witness to the Lord. Here's why the churches are a witness in the book of Revelation, or they should be. As a witness or lampstand, they were meant to shine in the midst of the persecution that they were going through. It's referring to the churches going through the tribulation and shining for Jesus and their witness for 1260 days. Remember that from the previous message, which as we've seen before, is symbolic of the tribulation beginning with John's time right up to the time of the coming of Jesus. And verse 9 says that the whole world
gets to see the dead witnesses, which is also saying that the world gets to see the suffering that the church is going through for the sake of the gospel. So those who believe that the two witnesses are individuals, they're going to be in trouble because we are told that the beast will bring about their death. And those who believe in the two individuals being uh, the two witnesses, believe that current technology and television and so on, and that the world could observe these two guys or individuals go through this suffering through current technology and so on. But I think that's stretching the text and imposing today's ideas on the text that has been around since the time of John. For example, Martin Luther, Calvin, during the Reformation, how did they interpret a text like this? They had no technology in their time like we do today. So what do they do with a text like this? Just ignore it? Or do they try and work out what it's talking about? The world from the time of John has seen the church suffer during the time of tribulation, which is an, with, a, with an ever-growing intensity as time goes on. And that intensity is continuing to grow even in our day and time. Verse 7 speaks about the beast making war against God's people. He is opposed to the witness of God's people. Satan hates God's people and will do everything in his limited power to try and destroy the witness of the church. Here's the reason uh, the people of the world support the beast against the two witnesses in verse 9. And so we come to the death of the two witnesses. It's nothing new to say that there are many times in life where we find that evil prevails. It's happened in history, it happens regularly in our day and time as well. And the text tells us that when they, that is the two witnesses or the church, have finished their testimony, the beast or Satan or his agent, the Antichrist, whom Satan works through, attacks the witnesses and kills them. And we'll talk more about the beast in the chapters that are to follow. Verse 7 and 8 says that when the two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. You know, the time that that's talking about has already come for those in throughout history who have been silenced and put to death for their testimony to Jesus. But this is going to be ongoing. The church has suffered persecution and in some cases communities of believers have been put to death and their witness has been silenced. And the testimony that the verse speaks about is speaking about the witness, the witness of the church. It refers to the gospel that we speak to our world today. And here at the end of history, once the gospel has been preached to all the world and God has called the final person he wants to call to himself, it's then that our testimony to the world will be finished, to use the words of verse 7. It says, Satan will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. John is referring here to this conflict as war. And some see this as the war of Armageddon because it is the final war where Satan gathers the world against the church or God's people. However, 
That's when the Lord intervenes and Jesus will return to claim his church, as verse 11 points out. God will rapture, God will resurrect both the living and the dead, and the final judgment will take place on the world of unbelievers with the return of Jesus. So this is saying that the struggle of believers or the church will continue till the end until their testimony is finished. Satan cannot conquer and kill God's people, to use the words of our text, until their work on earth is done and their witness is complete. And John says in verse 8 that the two bodies of the two witnesses who symbolize all believers will lie in the street of the great city which symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Notice the names and places are referred to symbolically, as I've been saying right through the book. So in referring to the names of these places like Sodom and Egypt, John is speaking of the nature of the forces that will seek to destroy the church, not just at the end of the church era, but throughout the church's history. And he mentions Sodom. Now why would he pick Sodom symbolically? Sodom is known for its moral corruption, isn't it? If there is something that can destroy the work and witness of God's people, it's moral corruption. It's permeating the church today and its influence weakens the church's voice. And we see that in our day and time as well. I think the church today has more to fear from moral corruption than from physical persecution. Listen to A.W. Tozer. He has this to say about this situation. The idea that this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted in practice by the vast majority of Christians. The worship growing out of such a view of life is as far off center as the view itself. A sort of sanctified nightclub without the champagne and the dressed up drunks. Egypt is also mentioned. What's Egypt known for? Well, God's people suffered in Egypt and they suffered under political and economic oppression, didn't they? And this too is happening today and has happened in history. The preaching of the gospel has been outlawed in, outlawed in some parts of the world by politicians and still is and Ian prayed along those lines for those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Christians have suffered starvation. The church has, target, has been targeted economically in some countries as well. The church is being targeted today by those in government, even in our own country, as it passes laws designed to suppress the gospel and stop the church practicing what we believe. The gender issue, for example, the same-sex marriage, just to mention two of them. Jerusalem is mentioned, the place where the Lord was crucified, the city of religious apostasy. That doesn't need much elaboration. We've seen it in history, we see it today. But the question in the light of all of that is, the question that comes to me is, has God lost control of what's going on when it says that the beast has killed the witnesses? 
My friends, the Lord never has or will ever lose control. And it's seen here in that the witnesses will not be killed until they have finished their testimony. In other words, God is in control. He will permit this to happen only when the church has finished its witness and testimony. And it's only for a limited time. They are not permitted to die until their task is over. And that too is short-lived. Look at verse 11. It says that following the death of the witnesses, the breath of life from God will enter them. In other words, enter God's people. Here's the resurrection of the church. The days of evil are not going to last forever. The persecution of the church will not go on forever. Believers will not suffer for their fight and some be put to death for their witness forever. In other words, this isn't all that there is as far as the testimony and progress of the gospel is concerned. I say that because chapter 11 isn't the end of the story. There is more to come. There's encouragement at the end of the book of Revelation. Why? Because we are told about the new Jerusalem where there will be no more crying, no more tears, and so on. Yes, the people of the world who are in the outer court, as we saw in my last message, who belong to the realm of the evil one and who are opposed to God, they rejoice at the death of the witnesses. They rejoice because they believe, as verse 9 and 10 point out, that they have silenced the church. They have silenced the voice of the witnesses. The witnesses, the witnesses who have spoken out against sin, their need for repentance and the coming judgment. Notice that the two witnesses torment those who dwell on the earth. Two guys, if you take the individualistic view, two guys who dwell on the earth. It endorses that the two refer to all believers, both Jew and Gentile, doesn't it? The church, because two individuals cannot torment the entire world. Rather, because we, the church, represent the truth, and the truth exposes the darkness of the evil world, the people of this world are tormented by the church. That's what I believe the text is saying. Yes, the world hates the church because it makes a stand against sin and urges people to repent or perish. And so people gloat over their dead bodies, their dead bodies of the saints, verse 10, but only for a short time. They party and they celebrate, as those verses tell us, what they believe is the demise of the church and the silence of its witness and testimony, but their partying will come to a sudden end. God will intervene and their joy will be short-lived. I'm reminded of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. He was partying, he was celebrating, he was using the, the vessels of the temple in Jerusalem to party and he was honoring his pagan gods and in the midst of the party, Belshazzar sobers up very quickly. Why? Because he saw a writing on the wall, a hand writing on the wall. Mene, mene, telek, parson. God has numbered your days and brought it to an end. That's the message here. 
in this passage. The parting and rejoicing of those who are anti-God and anti-gospel will be short-lived. Why? Because the seventh trumpet is about to sound. Verse 15. It will be for three and a half days in comparison to the testimony of the people of God, which is for three and a half years. The gospel witness has always made progress throughout history. The church has never been destroyed. And yes, there have been persecution from time to time in different places, but the church continues to grow. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so this persecution will come to a sudden end. It will be brought to an end by the resurrection of believers being called into heaven. In speaking of the resurrection of God's people, both dead and living, I think it makes perfect sense that this would occur right after our work on earth is done and the last person is saved, as the text alludes to. The timing fits, the description of this passage fits that scenario. Here's the time when God's people will be vindicated. God promises his people that although they may be put to death, and suffer persecution for their witness and testimony to Jesus, they will experience a resurrection. A resurrection accompanied by a great earthquake, as verse 13 points out. Notice the numbers 10 and 7, which we've come to see previously, which are symbolic. Both numbers are numbers of perfection or completion. And so verse 15 tells us that the seven trumpet sounds and the people of the world will incur the wrath of God through his judgment. It's the time when it will be too late to repent. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And you want to sing the hallelujah chorus, don't you? And he shall reign forever and ever. This is the chorus of celebration and thanksgiving in heaven by the people of God. Notice the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. It's mentioned in conjunction with the instruments of divine warfare, earthquake, hail, thunder, and so on in verse 19. It's dramatically assuring us that Jesus the Lamb will bring about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Well, that's the text. As I said, I wasn't going to get into the details. So I want to use the rest of my time by just focusing on two areas of uh, application. The question which came to my mind is, why does Jesus, through John, allude to Moses and Elijah as witnesses in verse 6 and 7? Why not any of the others in Scripture? Why choose Moses and Elijah and Joshua and Zerubbabel, as I'll come to in a moment? And I believe that Jesus is doing this through John because in representing the church, he wants to show that they both stood alone against the enemy as witnesses to the power of God, Elijah and Moses. The example of Moses and Elijah is used to depict the church as it stands against the world. Elijah stood alone against Ahab and Jezebel. Moses also stood alone 
against Pharaoh. And Moses could look Pharaoh in the eye and say, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. Both stood alone, but they were not alone. Both were able to witness the power of the truth of God in stopping the rain and turning water into blood and so on, as it says in verse 6 and 7. In other words, they stood for the truth in the midst of a hostile and unbelieving people. And that's the message for us today. The same situation with Joshua and Zerubbabel, who I alluded to in verse 4. Their efforts were small, their efforts were inadequate, and they too faced opposition in what they tried. Yet they persevered and God encouraged them to persevere. How did he do that? He sent to them a message saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I will accomplish this, in other words. So whether it was Moses, Elijah, Zerubbabel, or Joshua, and their own inadequacy, or whether they faced a formidable foe, it made no difference. God would have them be his witnesses and he would grant them the power for the task and make sure that they would be victorious in the end. He will protect his witnesses. Witness protection. And the application is obvious, isn't it? That we as the church whom these witnesses represent, that we, like them, that we will face opposition, hatred and persecution in many forms. The majority in society don't believe or want to see the gospel spoken about or lived out in the lives of those who do believe the gospel. To stand for the truth in the midst of a hostile and unbelieving society. That's the mandate that we have as Christians. It is to be a witness for Jesus and his truth. That like Moses and Elijah, to not back off even when we face opposition. To trust God in it and take encouragement because we have the promise of God's spirit to empower us. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the Lord will protect his witnesses and keep them to the end. It doesn't mean to say that they won't lose their lives as the text tells us at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter. But God will protect them and, witness, and, and keep his witnesses. And in the end he will raise them and I'll come to that in a moment. Throughout history and today... Numerous believers have paid the ultimate price with their lives. And living and working in a hostile and secular society, my friends, I don't need to tell you, it brings challenges and it also brings fears. Christians and the Bible are despised and seen as irrelevant and even hypocritical in our day and time. Add to that, that the failings of those in the church, especially its leaders, and the world is opposed to the church. But let me ask, um, what should our response be in being witnesses to the gospel in a hostile world? How do we respond to people who are antagonistic? Yes, we stand up for the truth of the gospel. We stand up for its principles. But what should our attitude be to those who oppose us? I just want to suggest five quickly. I'm not going to elaborate on them. Just to mention them. How should we respond to people? We are to be people marked by grace and show it in our approach to others. It's been said that it's difficult to have gospel in conversations, but we should never be difficult people. Don't be concerned if people think you're weird because you show love to those who oppose you and what you believe. Number two, along similar lines, love your enemies. 
And you know what the scripture says about that. Do not repay evil for evil and so on. The way to imitate Jesus is to treat others graciously even when they may not repay it. In other words, do good to them. Number three, don't be surprised when you encounter opposition to the gospel. Expect it. It's normal. All those who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus says in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we've seen it with the two examples here of Moses and Elijah. Number four, remember you're not the only one who's facing opposition and hatred if, you, if you're opposed uh, on a personal level. Although the opposition you're going through might seem very significant to you, remember that many of your brothers and sisters in Christ also face similar situations. Number five, don't let the world mold you into its way of thinking and living. Again, I'm reminded of Daniel and how King Nebuchadnezzar expected Daniel and the Jewish people to conform to their thinking, their diet, and their worship in Babylonian culture. But Daniel stood firm, didn't he? He and his friends, they refused. They refused to let the pagan world they lived in squeeze them into its mold. So also as God's chosen people, we live in a world where God has called us to not be influenced and led astray by anti-gospel thinking, the so-called progressive thoughts and changes in our day and time, where it goes against the Bible and its principles and standards. For example, it's popular today to be seen, to be open-minded, towards all the moral changes that are taking place in our society, which a few years ago would not have entered the mind of those who were in society. So there's pressure to accept them or even to embrace them, calling them personal choices or alternative lifestyles and so on. So can I urge you, friends, to stand up for what is right and for righteousness. After all, those who promote anti-gospel thinking and living, they don't hesitate to let it be known what they think and the way they are moving and so on. So why should we? Ask yourself that question. Why should you be silenced by the voice of society? We who know that we possess the truth of scripture, why should we be hesitant or fearful in doing so? 1 Peter 1 says, In your hearts regard Christ as Lord, as holy, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. We show an inflexible purpose to do right. Why? Because it is right. Because it's the truth. Because we care for the truth. The text tells us that we continue to speak and witness to the truth of God's word. And we've seen that unbelievers will celebrate their wickedness against God's people, verse 10. But we persevere because we know and believe in the power of God's word. There is power in the words of the Lord in scripture. Verse 5 tells us that fire came from the mouths of the witnesses and devours their enemies. It's not, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? 
Jeremiah 23, verse 29. So let me ask, do you have confidence in God's word? Are you confident that when you share it with others that it will not return to him void until it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent? That God will use it to do what he seeks to achieve in a person's life. You know, this is my confidence in preaching every week. If I didn't have that confidence, I don't know what I'd do. I am confident that God will use his word to accomplish what he wants in your lives. You might forget most of what I say when you walk out that door. But you know, it's still in the recess of your mind. And God can use it to do something in your life, especially those who are unbelievers. Not immediately, as is often the case, but in God's own time. There are many stories of God's power at work through his word long after the word is first planted or watered in a person's life. Let me tell you the story from one pastor. He says, 13 years ago, a lady called Gail sat under my preaching. She was a practicing witch who proudly displayed a bumper sticker which said, Born Again Pagan. After one of the worship services, she was visibly shaken. Her face was red and she was angry. She asked me, did I understand you to say that if you don't trust Jesus, then I will go to hell? I explained to her that yes, that is exactly what I said. I'll never forget her response, she said. I cannot believe the audacity of anyone who would make such a claim. Who do you think you are? I will never step foot in this church again. Over a decade later, Gail called me to tell me her story. Her life began to spiral out of control. In fact, she came to a point where she resolved to take her own life. With pills in hand, she decided to walk down the street to a church before swallowing the pills. A maintenance worker saw her and began to talk to her. She eventually agreed to meet up with the minister and ultimately came to trust in Jesus as her Lord. And she is now a faithful member in that church in a nearby city. In our phone conversation, she said, You know, through the years I couldn't stop thinking about the things that you said. God has shown me how wrong I was and how right you were. I want to apologize to you and thank you for giving me God's word. I rejoiced with her and encouraged her to keep growing in the Lord. My friends, who knows what God's word may do in an, in an unbeliever's life and how many such testimonies will never be known even until eternity. So never doubt the power of God's word. The power of God's word lies slowly, uh, solely in God himself and it will accomplish what he wants it to. So if you've shared, some, if you've shared Christ with someone, and he or she has not responded, perhaps they've even been hostile, don't be disheartened. You've done your task. You never know the impact your words may have had on the Lord who could use it. Maybe even years later, you may not even be aware of it. So keep being witnesses. And then finally, I want to point out that in the tough gig of both living the Christian life, which I've been talking about, and being a faithful witness to Christ with all that comes with that area, we can look forward to the best that is yet to come.
Why do I say that? Because the passage speaks of a resurrection. We often refer to it as the resurrection when Jesus comes again to claim his people and to wrap up this world. In other words, this life is not all that there is. The persecution and pain that we go through for our faith is only temporary. It does not and will not last forever. Verse 12 tells us that the Lord commands his witness to come up in a cloud to heaven. A cloud which in scripture is often symbolic of the presence of God. And so John is saying that those who witness for the Lord will be with the Lord. Like Jesus who was taken up to heaven, so also his people will receive the same reward. This is the promise for you and me who know Jesus in our life. A promise of the resurrection. Verse 11 speaks of the breath of life which entered the dead witnesses, those who represent all God's people. This is the same breath that gave life to the first man whom God created and God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living being. And that's what the text tells us will happen to those who die in Christ and who die from persecution through the work of the beast. There will be a resurrection where they will live forever in the presence of Jesus, their saviour in heaven. Do you believe that? Does it give you peace and confidence in the face of death that the Lord has power to breathe life into a dead body and you become a living soul? Will it sustain you if you know you don't have long to live? Perhaps because you're terminally ill or because life is drawing to a close given your advanced years? Do you believe this? You see, if you believed and trusted in the other promises of the scripture, then this is just one more, isn't it? There's no reason for not believing this one. God is able to keep and will keep his promises and breathing life into a dead body, into lifeless bones, is no big deal for him. There was a man who was once taken to a valley and he saw there that the place was full of dry and dead bones. And this guy was led back and forth among those bones and he tells us what happened. He says, I saw a great many bones, bones that were very dry. He says that God's spirit asked him a question and the question was this, can these bones live? And this guy replied, Lord, you alone know that. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so he says, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. 
Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and breath entered them, and they came to life, and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. This is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That man, of course, was the prophet Ezekiel, experiencing firsthand the power of God to effect a resurrection in the lives of dead people. And what God said he can do in the valley of dry bones, he can do for you and for me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are God Almighty, that you are all-powerful. We thank you for the gospel that we've considered this morning. And we pray as we prayed before that we might embrace it and Lord, we pray that these words might encourage us in our walk with Christ. In the midst of all the antagonism and the problems that we face in life from a world that's hostile to the gospel, we ask, Lord God, that you might remind us of these truths, that you would grant us grace and strength to stand up for the gospel, and in so doing, know the encouragement that comes through your Spirit into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.